0: Any kind of solution will have to come from a collective imagination and from organising together, and that's the difference between sort of leading and organising, between teaching and organising. I don't think that reading books or going to uni is the only way to find your politics. I think finding your politics through action is more, I don't know if it's more effective or if it's more authentic or whatever, but if this was my way and this is the kind of way that I want to do politics, so it never involves lecturing people, it involves organising.
1: This is True Currency, produced through the Alternative School of Economics
2: at Gasworks. I'm Amy Fennick, And I'm Ruth Beale. And we're artists whose practice is all about finding ways of learning creatively and collectively. Over this series, we're meeting a network of extraordinary women who have been teaching us about feminist economics through their experiences and ideas. In this episode, we look
1: at how feminist economics is being tested out with two projects initiated by artists. And we hear more about the Commission from the Women's Budget Group working feminist economic ideas into the mainstream. One of the common themes around a more feminist approach to economics has been sharing power more equally and working with people rather than on their behalf as Lucilla Granada from FLEX, Focus on Labour Exploitation, explains.
0: Uh, there's a clear feminist approach to the organization. The fact that we're dedicated to expose those structures and question the distribution of power at work and looking at what is usually presented as, you know, inevitable natural order of things as something that is actually sometimes designed and many times misinformed. I think definitely there's a, a feminist approach to the work and a feminist lens to the issues at work. It's about cooperation, I think. It's about understanding what everyone can bring and the role of different organizations, I guess, and and in not speaking for others.
2: Lucille explains that the way Flex conducts their research is something
0: called FPAR, Feminist Participation Action Research. It's a methodology basically. It's a way of doing research. It's also about, you know, challenging the the power dynamics within research and It's about not doing research on people, but with people.
1: This way of doing research, listening to people on the ground, is echoed by Marion Sharples from the Women's Budget Group in the way that they've been doing research as part of their commission
3: for a gender equal economy. In each of the devolved nations, we've held kind of dialogue and learning sessions, uh, evidence sessions, if you like, as well with local women's organisations, equalities organisations, just to kind of hear firsthand what the main issues are, the main problems that uh, the women they work with or the women they represent are experiencing. We've also held learning sessions with representatives of the devolved governments. We've had parliamentary sessions engaging policymakers in Westminster and also in the Welsh Assembly. We've had kind of public calls for evidence on our different themes. So the different themes of the commission are paid and unpaid work, public services, social security and taxation, And then we call it the enabling environment, I guess, the kind of broader structures that need to be in place for a gender equal economy to even be possible. So looking at things like trade policy, financial policy, monetary policy, things like that. So we've been holding calls for evidence on all of those different things with a particular focus on transformative policies so really looking at ideas of you know exciting things which are already happening in other countries that we can learn from or ideas that people are coming up with seeing how they could be included within this policy package and also kind of seeing how these different ideas can fit together you know if we're Mm. looking at ideas for kind of a, a reduced working week how does that sit alongside universal free childcare, for example, how does that sit alongside ideas around a universal basic income, trying to pull some of these ideas together, seeing how they can complement or contradict each other, and always having this gender perspective applied.
1: It gives me great pleasure to call to deliver his budget statement, Mr Chancellor of the Exchequer.
3: Really, the idea of the Commission was born out of the fact that What the Women's Budget Group has done historically has been to analyse government economic policy, particularly looking at the the kind of annual budget that the Chancellor puts forward. And it really was just a sense that it's time to really create space to come up with an alternative vision for our economy as opposed to kind of responding I guess to the agenda of the government of the day. We've done bits and pieces over the lifetime of the Women's Budget Group around alternative policies but what we really wanted to do was develop this kind of suite of coherent policies. Um, that together we can present as as an alternative, kind of looking both at the vision. What do we want the economy to be? What do we want it to look like? What should we value within our economy? How should we measure success? All of those kinds of big questions. You know, over the last few years, there's been quite a lot of mobilization in terms of developing this alternative economic vision for the UK. Um, But what we've often seen is that the kind of gender element of that is not always prioritized. So we really wanted to contribute to that discussion, but really making sure that we centre gender equality from the start at the same time looking at it very much from an intersectional perspective and recognising that sexism and patriarchy exist alongside and interacting with many other forms of oppression. We're going to hear more from Marion about the
2: commission later but first we wanted to introduce some projects initiated by artists We've been working as the Alternative School of Economics for eight years and over that time we've become aware and been influenced by other artists who are also exploring economics. And although some of those artists seem like they're working small scale or DIY, I think they're making serious propositions about how society can function differently.
4: I do a lot of work around ideas of feminist economics and alternative economies and looking at how we can put feminist economic theory into practice in our daily lives. Ailey Rutherford is an artist based in Glasgow, and she's been
1: running an alternative economy initiative called the People's Bank of Govan Hill.
4: So the project really grew quite organically. It almost happened by accident, really. When I first moved to Glasgow, I was doing this residency with the Baths and was really interested in talking to people about what might happen over the next hundred years, trying to envisage various possible alternative futures. One of the things I do a lot in my practice as an artist is talking to people about a kind of post-capitalist futures, so I guess with a fairly utopian idea of the future, and that led on to conversations about what if Governhill one day had its own independent currency. But I printed a set of notes with the People's Bank of Governhill written on it, and did a few quite ad hoc exchange projects and I kind of just meant it to be like the planting of a seed of an idea it was just going to go out there and that was the end of my residency but I realised I had then put these notes into circulation and people started asking me what we were going to do with them next I think at that point I realised that it wasn't just a project there was a lot more mileage in it and it was really important for it to become something that was much more collective and collaborative I started working with a few local women on developing the ideas and it's just really grown from there. And it's grown into quite a long-term project. It's also now collectively run. And in 2018, we opened a feminist exchange space called Swap Market.
2: With us in London and Ailey and her co-worker Uzma Ashraf via a rather glitchy Skype call in Glasgow, we asked them to explain how the Swap Market works and how it offers an alternative. Here's Uzma.
5: I'm the assistant manager at the swap market based in Govanhill, Glasgow. An exchange space for the community to swap items or skills and knowledge. And at the beginning it was just a sort of empty space. A lot of people assumed it was like an artist space. And so we explained that the shop is run without the need for money. You sign up to become a member which is free. And then you get yourself a membership card and on your membership card there's a point on it to start you off so you're allowed to take an item for free. And then you're limited to bringing five items a day and you would collect points for the items that you bring in. And then with your points you're able to take items away. The space works in a sense that you don't have to use your points on just items. The spaces can facilitate skill swaps. So we've had a range of different skill swaps that have been offered. They range from like French language lessons to badge making, to learning how to curl your hair with plastic straws. The swap market has actually become a lot bigger than what we expected. And it's turned into just a really big welcoming community space, I would say.
2: So it's creating a different kind of economy, but it's also creating a different kind of space or public space or shared space.
5: Absolutely, yeah. I think because people aren't used to spaces where there's no money needed, some people were quite uneasy in that sense. They were saying, no, I can't take something away for free. There must be a catch. So it was trying to get people's heads around it. Somebody would bring in a push year and they'd be like, look, my kids have outgrown it. But within a couple of hours, that push chair would be gone because there'd be somebody else who's in need of it. And it's that way where the community have sort of come
4: together without the needs again, for money. It's probably also worth pointing out that we have now about 2,000 local residents who are signed up as members to the swap market. And that's not just a kind of one-off, visit, You know, they come back and use the space. But more than half of those people don't have email and aren't necessarily online.
1: Before we hear more about the swap markets up in Glasgow, let's hear from another artist in East London, Katrin Boom, co-founder of Company Drinks, We spoke to her at their building in Barking on a rainy February day and the building has a leaky roof, so you might just hear some dripping in the background.
6: Company Drinks is art in the shape of a community drinks enterprise. That's the one-liner for the art audience. Company Drinks has been set up in 2014 in the London Borough of Barking and Dagenham, both as an arts project but also as a community drinks enterprise with the idea of reconnecting a kind of urban community to to land, to means, to means of production, and therefore producing drinks. But we're also connecting back to a kind of very East London-specific history that a lot of people who who lived traditionally in the East End would remember, which is called Going Picking, which is this kind of remarkable history of like families, but mainly children, and their mothers going from the east end of London to Kent every autumn for three years to do hop picking. That was something that went on for 100 years and up to 100,000 people went every year. It's a great day down
5: in Poplar and Bermondsey and Bow and half a dozen other boroughs in the east end of London. A day to have the family up early, for mum to be ready for an outing. For Alfie and Tom and Mavis and sister report all present on roll call. A day for dad to make sure he's got his Becky and his favorite pipe with him. For not picking is round
6: again. When I came across that history and the oral history of women who remember her picking, people talked about getting away from everyday life, having autonomy, having financial freedom. They almost talked about anarchy and patriarchy. So I thought there's something really interesting this idea of like going picking together as a different way of organising yourselves. So company drinks was a very straightforward invitation in Barking and Dagenham to everyone who was interested. Um, to come picking with us. We're now in our seventh year. The idea is quite simple. We have a year-long production cycle that includes everything from like growing, to picking, to blending, to mixing, to branding, to trading, to drinking, <laughs> and reinvesting, and that's seasonal. And that production cycle is open to many, many different individuals and groups in the borough who are interested in the many, many different aspects of what we are doing.
2: So Company Drinks works like a normal business, but there's a level of critique there in everything they do, really. And then specifically through what Catherine calls the Centre
6: for Plausible Economies. Um, The Centre for Plausible Economies is basically the art strand of Company Drinks. It's the kind of programme where we talk about art, economy, how they're related... But also, how we how we kind of bring theory and practice together through company drinks, but also other colleagues who work with economy and enterprise. It's our kind of action research program.
2: I find it really amazing how the the project's so layered and multifaceted mm-hmm. and, and operates on different levels, you know as a social enterprise, as a business, as a food enterprise, mm-hmm. as something that's social, that's about history, um that's about locality. And yeah, I think it's very.
6: Rich. Yeah, rich, that's a word a lot of people use when they describe right. us. They, they, they say like, oh, it's really rich what you're doing. That brings us to the whole topic of economy, mm. which, of course, on the one hand, it's kind of problematic doing a kind of like arts project in, a, in an area that undergoes heavy regeneration and where culture will be used to, like, gentrify. Um, but at the same time, it's an area um, that's kind of post-industrial. Mm. Many of the families have been working at Ford. Uh, other big um, manufacturing Mm -hmm. industries, but also the post-agricultural. So I think to just reconnect whoever lives here now to the idea of having direct access to means and producing something together, that's the key of company drinks. But also like the fact that it's a drinks company makes it very tangible. You know, we can talk about economies, but also we have a drink. We designed labels for some of the drinks where we reveal the different resources that go into making the drink. And they include like the financials, you know, how much does it cost to pay for a coach for 50 people to go to a farm in Kent. But the the label also um, identifies the the non-quantifiables and also the kind of non-financial contributions. So we kind of break down the economy as something that we all are involved in shaping and making every day in very simple terms. So on our picking trips, we started to do um, investment sheets. Instead of, instead of doing like feedback, everybody gets a sheet that says, what do you invest today, what do you get out? Very simple question which everybody can respond to because everybody knows exactly what they're investing. You know, if someone from the arts council sits on the bus, they will say, we've invested a, a thousand pounds today. And by child, will say, I brought three cakes. And Miriam's daughter will say, I took a day off work. With that simple question, what do you bring, what do you take out? Everybody becomes an investor and everybody becomes a kind of benefactor from company drinks and this kind of equal relationship even though it's maybe just temporary is really important to us.
1: I like the way that value is clearly not just about money here and everyone's input is seen as an investment to the company in some way whether it's monetary or time which is I think it's really at the crux of feminist economics. Ailey Rutherford from swap market also suggests that sharing skills and knowledge has value.
2: So you've created this this different kind of economy. It's not monetary, it's about reuse and recycle, it's about the community. And I'm wondering, like, is this what a feminist economy looks like? And could it be bigger?
4: It's not just about the physical exchange of stuff. You know, there's a lot of exchange of knowledge and skills and ideas that make up the swap market as well. I mean, the kind of preventing things from going to landfill is... I think, quite a one small aspect of what we do. We also hold a lot of really interesting workshops and events. And one of the things that I've found really exciting is that over the five years of doing this project, it's moved from maybe saying words like feminist and economics in the same sentence and people going, what is she talking about? To We can put on an event here on a Saturday afternoon about feminist economics or related topics and it will be booked out to capacity. People have come to the Romanesque language class and things who I think otherwise would not have, maybe wouldn't necessarily have thought to go to that language class unless it was being offered and they had points on a swap card. There's a lot about trying to value things that are largely undervalued in a capitalist society that I think is really at the crux of this. I have personally held a skill swap which was called Women's
5: Words and I offered hand massage to ladies and it was just a space where I said look there's no subject topic, there's no activity that you have to follow, if you want a hand massage you can have a hand massage, there's tea biscuits and cake available and the range of women that came in was really varied, regardless of what status you have, you're welcome in the space. After the Mass studies, I ended up holding somebody else's baby and she was like, you know, it's nice just to know that you can have support without filling out an application form or waiting on a list and just be hands-free from my own baby and just to have a conversation with somebody is is really valuable.
2: I wonder, could these ideas be put into practice more widely? And what are the principles that make them alternative or feminist?
6: Yeah, I mean, first of all, we're saying we are a not-for-profit company, which is not so unusual. So people kind of know what that means. But I think because we're a drinks company, it's a bit more ambiguous. There's an assumption that we make money with making drinks. And then we can quite quickly explain that we can't make money with making drinks because we have certain business ethics attached. For example, one of our main principles is to keep half of what we produce in the borough. Otherwise it becomes a kind of colonial practice. You know, I go to Barking and Dagenham, produce those great drinks rooted in this history of people going picking, but I, I export them all somewhere else where I can sell them for maximum profit. So only half of our stock is being sold at maximum profit. And then also there's a commitment to not focusing on alcohol as another kind of more ethical decision Um, and those are both business decisions that basically prevent us from making profit. Um, We had a team day last week and everybody in the group said one of the reasons why they're staying involved with company drinks is that it's a kind of mini system where a lot of the values they have personally, they can also practice and translate into their work. Like the idea that there's no hierarchy within the team, the idea that we all get paid the same, the idea that we don't just say we're kind of safe space, we're also like really careful about providing that safe space for people who work with us. So there's a feeling that the way that we run it and practice it is very close to a lot of people's values.
2: I also asked Ailey about this more feminist approach to running the organisation.
4: Well, I'm really interested in feminist governance and trying to work out what on all the rest that is, really. I've become really interested in how we can rethink those standard governance models. So a lot of the time, I guess the the usual committee structure is that you have a chairperson, a treasurer, a secretary, Mm -hmm. and that that committee is voluntary. It's probably designed around most of those people being older probably retired probably white probably men with a lot of professional experience those models are perhaps not fit for purpose anymore when you've got a bunch of women some of those people are working mums some of those people have other caring responsibilities we're all juggling multiple jobs often multiple precarious work so yeah just trying to rethink how that might play out and how we could create something that's a much more democratic structure
1: and could you talk a bit more about how Company Drinks is, is a feminist organisation,
3: or group?
6: Well, I think just based on simple pr- principles of like not exploiting others, a sense of equality, inclusion, fairness, ethics around um, caring for people. I think for me, um, also the way we describe our economy is that Company Drinks is, is a small autonomous zone that we have set up, you know. So w- we are in control how we organise different relationships. And I think for me, a key principle then is to have relationships as mutual relationships. So in the beginning, when it was set up, it was called Company, movement Deals and drinks. Oh, yes. So the, the idea of a good deal was always resonating with, with how we want to have, have relationships. You know when a good deal is a good deal, and it's normally a good deal for both sides.
2: Yes, yeah, so somebody who comes picking with you and states what they are investing that day... They might be out of work, they might be retired, they might be looking after their kids, but they're not economically inactive because they're yeah, no, investing exactly. in company drinks. Yeah,
6: yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly, that's what we were saying. I think also for a neighbourhood like Barking and Dagenham, which just constantly gets labelled as like economically deprived, I you know, think that's such a shitty way of talking about others. So I think one of the reasons why company drinks is kind of liked is also that it um, it demonstrates a very possible collective productivity, and that there is an economy and people support each other and things are possible, and claim this and make it visible. It's also a kind of feminist principle that you're interdependent. It's just a kind of human and also the, the, our interdependence of the planet. You know, it's also acknowledging yeah. not not just the human interdependence but also the kind of planetarian.
1: So the way companies are run can really have an impact on how much women are able to participate in economies.
5: Personally for myself, I am a single parent. And so when I first applied for the job, I did make that clear. And I know that a lot of women can feel on edge and feel they have to disclose that information until they've gained employment. I was open. And I think because I mentioned a lot about the need for single parents to be accepted and not to have barriers put on them. alia has been fantastic in the sense that if I've struggled with childcare, I'm able to use my lunch break to collect my daughter from school and bring her back to the shop. And that in return has encouraged more kids to come in and play in the shop. But it's that need of understanding that we're all going to go through struggles and aside from being a working parent, there's also the other side of care. Ailey allowed me to make that into one where my work performance hasn't been affected by also allowing my child to be within the workplace. And I think that is one of the things that is... is knocked back for a lot of women within the economy, besides the gender
4: pay gap. It's very much a project that's about alternative economies, but we don't exist outside the capitalist economy, you know. We all have rent and bills to pay and we need to raise funding, and so I think there's often this kind of juggle and and a balance between the ideal practice and the kinds of structures you have to work within in order to actually realise the project and make sure that everybody's paid. It's probably important to mention here as well, people often assume that the spot market runs with volunteer staff, but we've been really clear from the outset that people who are working on the project would be paid like a, a decent living wage.
5: We need to break down
4: these barriers that a person of colour, a woman of colour, can actually
5: be in a paid job and also be a single parent and you know, managing both at the same time. So, I mean, I've I'd like to think I've broken down a lot of these stereotypes to the people that have come in.
2: So we have a lot of ideas here. How an organisation is structured, what the hierarchy is, who's included and who's paid and what their working conditions are. And then there's how we think of all the transactions that go on, monetary or non-monetary. But there's other values too, like environmentalism and use of resources. Yeah, the first book we read in our
1: feminist economics reading group was Kate Roweth's Donut Economics, where she uses a donut shape to visualise an economy that has to be kept in balance. Food and health, energy, water but also peace and justice and social equity. It's radical in that it encompasses
2: all these measures of success that aren't just financial growth. Yeah, and she talks about the importance of using visual tools to redraw the economy, moving away from the plumbing pipes of money flowing around and the growth curve we're all familiar with.
1: We asked Catherine to tell us more about Catherine Gibson, so she's the economist who wrote the book Take Back the Economy and has this brilliant way of describing the economy as an iceberg. We've talked about this earlier in the series. She and Katrin have collaborated before.
6: I think over the years um, it's just become a, a kind of working relationship where of course we massively profit from her thinking and her experience. And I think at the same time we give her quite a good example for how things, things can actually work. And even though I think something like company drinks is very small scale, there's still value in experiencing and demonstrating that other principles can actually work quite well. And if once we forget that those things work, then 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 the argument from the other side that it doesn't work anyway becomes even more, you know, sledgehammer.
1: What we're also finding from talking to other people about this uh, about feminist economics is that. You know, the dominant system is not feminist economics, mm-hmm. but it's not that feminist economics doesn't exist. It exi- it's
6: existing yeah, yeah. all the time. The actual experience of knowing that things can be done different must not get lost, because mm-hmm. that's one of the forces, how neoliberalism kind of puts us, in, us into into tiny roles, the possibilities for doing things becoming narrower and narrower, narrower and narrower. Just to keep those things happening as reality in itself is super important. Yeah. for the sheer proof of being able to say it can work full stop,
2: there's a few things going on here, aren't there? there's there's like um' there's redrawing the economy, there's yeah. naming the different economies out yeah. there, and there's demonstrating other ways of doing things. Yeah. are those what you think of as taking back the economy?
6: Yeah, I mean, I think one the first step is obviously to like confidently locate yourself within the iceberg and say, oh, "I don't want to be." <laughs> Well, either say I don't want to be at the top yes. you know, or say actually I'd rather tilt it. You know, locate yourself and then decide how you'd rather have it. Imagine a kind of other future. A few years ago, I, I kind of curated a show with Gavin Wade for Eastside Projects, which was called uh, Trade Show, which was specifically about artists um, s- setting up and running other trading and economic structures. And what was interesting back then for me was to not do this as a kind of, not only as a critique of like the capitalist economy, but almost as a kind of independent practice. At the time, it seemed that artists were like, had to be kind of Marxist critics of the economy. It was always in a criticism in relation. And we wanted to have something that allowed artists to present their work not kind Of just as that, and also to get rid of the idea of like that we're producing alternatives. And I think then the iceberg is quite um, a, a good image and metaphor because the below the waterline is not an alternative to above the waterline, it's part of the same system, just Another. in a slightly different place.
2: Yeah, this is interesting because Captain is saying that to talk about the economy, artists used to feel that they had to resist the capitalist system, and be outside of it, but now the focus is on working with it. So that makes me think about why and how experimental alternatives that we know about, like co-ops and non-hierarchical workspaces, haven't made it into the mainstream. Is it about neoliberal capitalism sucking everything up? And how every alternative is consumed by that system? Maybe that's why it's so exciting to hear about policy change, if you can ever say that policy is exciting. Let's hear more
3: from Marion Sharples about the Commission for a Gender Equal Economy. When we launch the report, we'll definitely be trying to get the word out as much as possible. And that will involve going to the party conferences of the main Mm. political parties, and having discussions around it but we also want to take it out to civil society we want to go back to the organizations that we consulted with in each of the devolved nations and have discussions about you know how we got to this place and and how it can be useful for them and how you know how we can support them in their in their advocacy and their campaigns going forward Just, yeah, there's a lot of, lot of different destinations for it we hope. We did want to be quite comprehensive in looking in terms of the scope of the, of the economy, but it was just about really being ambitious, I guess, in terms of the, the scope of the Commission and what we can come up with, and that desire really to develop a kind of a broad policy package. And also, I think a lot of those issues are actually really closely related. You know, if you're talking about maternity leave, for example, and maternity pay, that is linked to work, but it's also very much part of Social Security talking about public services as well, what about the health provision around that, you know, so that's one kind of concrete issue that actually touches, it really spans across these kind of broad themes that we've
1: got. Something that Marion talked about was this idea of the enabling environment, all the structures and systems that are already in place.
3: It's the big yeah. kind of things which are hard to kind of make concrete. In, in, I oh, don't know, okay. from my perspective, you know, you can talk about a childcare policy. You can talk about what needs to happen in the in the health system. But what's happening at the at the kind of macro level for that to really be possible? You know, what kind of ownership structures do we have in place within the UK? You know, who's in control of those? And, and what does that mean when we look down at these kind of more concrete policy areas? And I think it's also about like... You know looking at the future of work what is the, what is the nature of the future of work going to be what what jobs are they going to be what jobs can there be, and who 's going to be in those jobs you know how well paid are they and you know what hours do they work and do they close in school holidays or those kinds of questions you know those are those are really important questions for women in work also there 's so much talk around productivity and you know why certain jobs are deemed unskilled and why they're deemed low paid and all of that kind of thing but in a job like care where so much of the quality of your work depends on that relational dimension talking about productivity how many people you can see per hour how many people you can Mm. see per day it doesn't make sense to to judge it in the same way and and we know that because you know if you're if you're inquiring about a nursery for example you want to know what the ratio is Mm. of adults to to children or carers to to children So how can that be the case if you want kind of individualised time, you don't want um, people being overwhelmed, rushing from from client to client Mm. or from child to child in that case, how can that marry with this need for productivity for high output work? And so I think that the way that we measure a good worker or a successful job just doesn't translate when we're looking at these relational jobs, relational work like care work. Mm. So there's a
1: clash here in privatising care work. In making it try to fit the capitalist model of faster, better, cheaper, when care work can't be done in that way. It's that other experience of time that we were talking about with Lisa Baratza in the last episode.
2: But there is a little bit of hope when you hear about other countries or cities beginning to place
3: value on something other than the exchange of cash. We can also look to other places in the world where these things are already in place. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the um, the wellbeing budget in New Zealand, this kind of new way of measuring the success of, of the economy. Yeah, I've got a quote here. The definition of success to one that incorporates not just the health of our finances, but also of our natural resources, people and communities. It's a, it's a really interesting lesson, I guess, for us to think about how elsewhere in the world people are also making these mm-hmm. um, attempts to... To, to challenge these kind of classical notions of what counts as a successful economy and, mm. and you know and in scotland for example they're also pursuing this wellbeing agenda where free personal care for the over 65s has been in law since 2002 which is not the case in england for example by any means the knock-on impact that that has on people and mainly women who were previously unpaid carers and that kind of automatic entitlement i guess um to that kind of care that has a huge a huge impact on unpaid carers who are disproportionately women our ambition is to is to come up with a coherent alternative which will be ambitious but we wanted it to be like that because we know that a few tweaks around the edges is not it's not going to be enough and and why should we settle for that why should we why should we be restricted to do that there is a lot of new and exciting stuff going on already and we can harness that and we can pull that together and we, we can build this. I really do believe that. And I feel that often women in general, you know, huge generalisation, but I think in general women are more reluctant, more more reluctant to kind of critique the economy, feel that they're not adequately equipped to do that. I think it's really important that we all, and particularly women, kind of realise our our power as taxpayers and And we all are taxpayers, you know, we all pay tax when we go and we buy something that has VAT. We all are taxpayers, everybody. And just kind of realising that power and taking ownership of the economy.
1: We recorded these interviews at the beginning of 2020, with our final interview happening just days before coronavirus lockdown. And over the course of making the podcast, conversations around time, paid and unpaid care work, have become part of a national conversation. It made complete sense to get back in touch with some of the people that we have met during this series to get their perspective on this unprecedented moment. We just had to make
2: one more episode. So next, we'll hear from Claire Summers, Lisa Baratza, Marion Sharples and Shiri Shalmi. Until then, for more reading... Take a look at our extra resources, a list of texts and links which expand on some of the topics talked about in this episode. You can find this at www.gasworks.org.uk True Currency, about feminist economics,
1: produced by Amy Fenwick and Ruth Beale from the Alternative School of Economics, with sound production by Lucia Scatsocchio from Social Broadcasts and commissioned by Gasworks and supported by the Paul Hamlin Foundation and Arts Council England.